Hey, quick question for you before I start introducing myself. Um, I actually got emotional back there watching you guys up here. Just lift your hands in worship uh, before the video played. Uh, but something that's always fun for me to talk about at camp is, uh, and th this is going to be pretty interactive as I'm up here, but who can tell me why do we raise our hands in worship? Why do some of us raise our hands in worship? Yeah, what do you think? A sign of surrender to God. That's so good. Yeah. A sign of surrender to God. Any, anyone else have any thoughts? Yeah. A way for the Holy Spirit to get to you. Okay. And, and as I was, I was just reflecting on, man, Lord, I see these students just in a posture of, of surrender before you. And, and an aspect for me too, when I raise my hands and worship to God, if anyone's a football fan out here, what do you do when your team scores a touchdown? Just hands up right away. And so when we see these awesome lyrics uh, that the band just sang, uh, like, oh, praise the name of our, Lord, of our Lord, our God. And for endless days, we will sing your praise. That comes directly from scripture. And it's just, God, I'm so excited that I can't not raise my hands and, and worship to you. Uh, so it's just fun for me to, to share that at camp because uh, worship through music is just, uh, I love doing it up here at camp and, and genuinely got emotional. And I know you don't know me yet. My name is Tyler. Like I said, uh, like Maddie said, I was on an airplane today. Uh, I live in central Virginia. And Joe, if you throw that picture up of, of our sweet little family, that's my wife, Sydney, of, of five years this year. And then we've got Gracie, who turns three next month, and then Joy, Joy's one and a half pretty soon. Uh, but the reason I want to put that picture up there, I, I want you to, to just look at me and my wife and just know we've been praying for you guys even, even before I get to see your faces. And, and I love camp and I love this opportunity. The reason that my church allowed me to, to leave in the middle of the week and, and come up here to Hume is because I just so desperately pray and ask the Lord that he would make himself known to you. And, and that's, that's what Hume is about. Recreation's so fun. All the activities that we get to do are just a blast, and, and I love that you come up here with your youth groups and, and just make sweet memories, but it's all revolved around the, the purpose that you would get to know God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. So that's, that's why I just couldn't say, say no to this opportunity, because now, now I get, get to stand on stage and just open the word of God, and, and we get to learn together who the creator of the heavens and the earth is, and who we are in light of him, and, and how he's made that truth known. Uh, so can you guys hold your Bible up with me, if you have it? And it's cool to see all them in here. And if you didn't bring it tonight, I'd encourage you to bring it back. But like I said, I love this to be interactive, because I don't want this to be just Tyler giving his opinion. Uh, it'd be such a waste of time if we did that. But instead, we're going to open the word of God and learn from him. So I'm going to read a main text each night. And then I, I want something interactive from all of us. I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And I just ask you guys in unison just to say back to me, thanks be to God. Uh, so let's just practice. Let's pretend I just read the main message. And I say, this is the word of the Lord. And, and why, why would I have you do that? It's because the Bible shows us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says that all scripture is God-breathed. And what that means is that the, the words that we are reading, when they were written in their original languages, were directly from God himself. So it's a reminder for all of us that, friends, this isn't Tyler's opinion. 
This isn't your youth pastor's opinion. This is directly from God himself. And then when you say, thanks be to God, that's for us to remember, wow, we, we got to approach just this book just with thankful hearts. And it's a good reminder for me, too, that, that this is a gift. Does that sound good? Okay, so open up those Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. And uh, I'm, I'm just going to give a quick overview, really just to catch me up with, with what you guys got to study yesterday and, and maybe just refresh your minds. And then what we're going to do tonight is walk through Daniel chapters 2 and 3. But I want to encourage you, even as you're watching these videos that Hume put so much work into, uh, as, as you're watching what's going on, I want you to see that the, the purpose that they use this creative twist to take a truth from God's word and, and bring it into a modern day idea for us to understand is ultimately for you to better understand God's word. So you're going to see the videos and then I get to teach and show you where that idea came from. Okay, so Daniel chapter 1, uh, the, the first message, you heard Daniel chapter 1 verses 1 through 2. And you met King Jehoiakim, you met King Nebuchadnezzar, and then verse 2, if you're comfortable highlighting or underlining in your Bible, I'd encourage you to highlight or underline, the Lord gave. Because the main point from that message was that God is sovereign. Does anyone remember what sovereignty means? Or what does it mean when we say God is sovereign? Yeah. Yeah, he rules over everything. That's great. So just like the king of Thailand is sovereign over Thailand, when we say God is sovereign, he, he is sovereign over the entire universe, over the heavens and the earth. So King Nebuchadnezzar may have felt like he was the most mighty man on the planet at that time. But what verse 2 showed us there is that King Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have been King Nebuchadnezzar unless God had allowed. So God gives Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. And then the second message last night, you got introduced to Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And they walked out of their land, and they were living in the promised land that God told Abraham they would get to live in, and that they would be a mighty nation. And that they had to just be so confused when they're ripped out of the city they were living in and taken to Babylon. And when they were taken to Babylon, they're given a new language to learn new literature to study, and literally down to the food that they were eating, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to control. But it's so sweet that, that we get to see that Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the king's food. And there we, we can pull a truth of a characteristic, a characteristic of God's people, is that we can resolve to stand firm in truth and to follow our convictions no matter what happens. And then chapter 1 ended with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah being the valedictorians of their class. If you remember, they were in the, the three-year training period in Babylon, and they were found to be the greatest trainees. But not only that, chapter 1 ends by showing us that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were actually 10 times greater than all the wise men in Babylon. And now we enter into chapter 2. So what I'm going to do, I said we're going to go through 2 and 3 tonight. I'll give you an overview of chapter 2, just because we can't not miss that story, that sweet story that happens there. But our main text is going to be in chapter 3. So feel, feel free to try and follow along with me through chapter 2. 
And uh, there's some debate here of, okay, do we go a little bit back in time and, and look back at the training period, or, or maybe it's just right after the training period for Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. But now the story goes from, from a focus on these Israelite teenagers who were ripped out of their home, and now the focus is on King Nebuchadnezzar. And it starts by saying that, that Nebuchadnezzar, and they did it so well with the, the Nez, he, he has this dream. And the Bible says that it greatly disturbed him, and, and he couldn't even sleep. So what Nebuchadnezzar does then is he calls everyone that he can. He calls all the wise men of Babylon. And he says, I, I had this dream, and I, I have to know its interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that if someone is going to interpret a dream, then that's something that's supernatural. So, they, then, so he demands they do something supernatural first. And he says, hey, wise men of Babylon, you need to first tell me what the dream is, and then I will trust you to give me the interpretation. And twice, the wise men of Babylon, the best that that nation could offer, they say, Nebuchadnezzar, this, this isn't fair. You've got to tell us the dream, and, and then we can give you the interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar just gets furious. And uh, I, I forget her name, but she, the character in the story who's just trying to to figure it out on her own ways, and, um, and it just doesn't work out. And, and Nebuchadnezzar is just so angry. Of, I know you're trying to lie to me, and I know you're trying to fake it. So then he, he commands that all the wise men in Babylon are to be killed. And at this point, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they would fall under that category. Whether they were yet considered wise men or, or under the authority of the wise men, they, they were about to die here. And then chapter 2 continues to say, uh, we meet a character named Arioch, and Arioch is the captain of the king's guards. And he comes to Daniel, and, and before he kills Daniel, Daniel's like, whoa, what's going on? And, and Daniel's not aware of, of why they are about to be put to death. So Arioch fills him in, and he tells him that the king had a dream, and he just needs to know the interpretation, but no one was able to. And we see Daniel do something insane in this part of chapter 2. He takes a leap of faith, and, and I'm in verse 16 now, because it says that Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation of the king. And when I first started studying Daniel, I just kind of assumed that surely Daniel knows the interpretation of the dream when he makes this appointment. But what's insane is, is Daniel was so desperate because his, he's literally about to die, and he takes a leap of faith, and he says, hey, make an appointment and schedule me an appointment with the king, and I'll tell him the interpretation. And then what do we see that he does? Then Daniel, verse 17, went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And here's an amazing verse. Daniel chapter 2, verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. That's right. So, so Daniel makes this bold claim and says, give me an appointment with the king. But he doesn't even know what the interpretation of the dream is. And he just goes back with his buddies and just begs God to give them the interpretation of this dream. And that was my favorite part in the video when they're radioing King Magnus. And then you saw the expression of, of Sherman when King Magnus responds, 
And it's so beautiful that how faithful they were continuing to radio the king and trusting the king with his timing to respond. And we get to do the same. We, we get to come before God who rules over the heavens and the earth and pray to him. And it's up to him when or how to respond. But God responds and in his mercy, he answers their prayer. And he gives Daniel the interpretation. And then chapter two continues on and Daniel gives he, now he stands before King Nebuchadnezzar, the mightiest man on the planet. And I would have loved to just be a fly on the wall in that room there and just watch King Nebuchadnezzar stand before this either teenager or young man who's in exile in his land. And he hasn't told anyone what his dream was. And then Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar his dream verbatim, which means word for word. And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, Joey, if you throw that next picture up, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you dreamed of an image and it was a statue, and the head was gold, and the chest and the arms were silver, and the core and the upper legs were bronze, and the bottom of the legs were iron, and then the feet were iron and clay. But then, if you look at the next picture, there was a stone that was not cut out of human hands, and it came and crushed the feet of iron and clay, and then the rest of the statue was destroyed. And I can just imagine Nebuchadnezzar sitting on his throne with his jaw just dropping, like, did this kid really just tell me that dream? And then Daniel goes even a step further, and he says, that is what you dreamed, and now here is the interpretation from God who reveals mysteries. And the interpretation of that dream, that's how chapter 2, uh, the back half of it, ends, where Daniel says that, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. And what the head of gold represents is, is you and Babylon right now. You're the mightiest empire on earth but your kingdom will come to an end. And there's going to be an empire that comes after you. And, and that represents the, the chest of silver and the arms of silver. But their kingdom will come to an end as well. And then will be the bronze kingdom and then the iron kingdom and then the iron and clay. But then the, the climax of the interpretation is that the stone that's cut not by human hands comes and crushes all of these symbolic kingdoms. And then it grows into a mighty mountain that fills the whole earth. And what Daniel shows us at the end of chapter 2, near the end, in verse 44, it says, And in the, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And here's where I'm going to hop out of the narrative a little bit and just tell you, if you're a follower of Jesus... You are a citizen of that everlasting kingdom. What we're reading about here is what Jesus has welcomed us into. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, that is, that is not your home. And I have a conviction that whenever I get to stand up and preach, I, I know that I'm talking to two people. You're either in one of these categories, and you're either a child of God because of Jesus and what he's done for you and, and made you right with God and, and adopted you into God's family, or... You are an enemy of God. And we'll talk about that over these three days. But you're either, you're not in, in the middle ground. You're either in one of those categories. You're either God's child or you are God's enemy. And I'll show you throughout the rest of this week where that comes from in scripture. But that is our forever home if we have faith in Jesus, this everlasting kingdom. And the Babylonians at that time may have said, surely our kingdom will never crumble. 
And then the Medes and the Persians who come after them may have said at that time, surely our kingdom will never crumble. And then Greece and then Rome and and you name all the empires that come. But every man-made kingdom comes to an end. But God Almighty is going to set up an everlasting kingdom that has no end. So then I want to point out, this is the last thing I'll point out in chapter 2, verse 47. So Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar his dream verbatim, and then Daniel speaks on behalf of God and says, this is the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar responds, and it says, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And as I was studying this, I got excited in this moment. I'm like, are you kidding me? These, these teenagers were ripped out of this, their homes and taken to this pagan land, but now the mightiest man on the planet is making this great declaration that God Almighty, the God of Israel, is sovereign, that he's God of gods, and that he's Lord, or that he's master of kings. But I want you to turn to your neighbor and, and say, oh no. Because what, what comes after chapter 2? chapter 3. And we see that Nebuchadnezzar had this dream given to him by God of this statue, but then, and then he makes this awesome declaration of, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, and then he literally spits in God's face and makes his own statue. And he tells all the nations of the earth to bow down to this inanimate object that I have made. And I want to pause again because it was honestly convicting for me as I read this, because my first instinct was just to judge Nebuchadnezzar. How could he be so quick to turn away from God like that? But then I I had to step back and be like, haven't I done this very same thing? And I believe there's a lot of us in this room that could say that same thing. Maybe you've even stood up at camp before and made a decision in front of your peers that you would follow Jesus, that he is your Lord. But then when you got back home, your life wasn't transformed and nothing changed. Or maybe you've gone to church your whole life and and you can answer all the right things, but the question is, do you really believe it or do you just know it? And it's so important that we don't be like Nebuchadnezzar and, and make this theologically accurate statement, but we don't really believe it in our heart. And we're gonna talk tomorrow morning about what sin is as the Bible teaches. And one of the sins that that we're gonna walk through is called the sin of unbelief. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar shows us right here. And friends, as I was studying Daniel more and more, and what we're gonna see this week is that we're actually a lot more like Nebuchadnezzar in our true nature than we are like Daniel. And it's so important to not just view yourself on, on the good side, but to recognize how desperate you are for a savior and how, how wicked we are in our true nature, and we need God to intervene. So we're going to harp on that tomorrow morning, but let's, let's hop back into chapter 3, because the story is not done yet. So another quick overview. He makes this statue. It's literally 90 feet tall. So if you can think of a nine-story building, this is this golden statue that he makes. And then there's thousands, if not tens of thousands in the kingdom of Babylon from many nations. And Nebuchadnezzar says, everyone, whenever you hear all the instruments played, you have to bow down to that idol. And if you don't, you will be thrown into the fiery furnace. He makes it crystal clear. And then all the instruments play. And everyone bows down. Everyone except for three Israelite young men. 
And that's where we'll hop into our main text. So we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. So now the wise men of Babylon are talking to Nebuchadnezzar. Starting in verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's try that again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. What what a gift from the Lord that we get to hear from him directly through his word. So, So what happens here in that section that I just read? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego together, they refuse to bow down to this idol. They know their life's on the line. And then they're brought before the king, and he's angry, but he actually gives them a second chance. And like, maybe you didn't hear me right, but if you don't bow down when you hear the music, you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace and die. And they don't even take him up on that offer to have a second chance. But instead, I love how the Bible words it here. In verse 16, it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king and said, and, and what it's saying is the Bible doesn't even show us who was speaking, but rather that these three young men are in such agreement that it doesn't matter who said it because they're standing together in this truth. And they say, we don't even need to answer you. And then they say, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. But then they just, I can just imagine them looking directly in the eye of the most powerful man on the planet And saying, even if God chooses not to save us, we're never going to bow to this inanimate object that you've made. Or or we won't bow to anyone or anything else other than God Almighty. And I want you to hold up a one for me, because here's point number one. And if you got your journals with you, I'd encourage you to write this down, because I hope this is discussed at cabin time tonight. But we persevere through trials by knowing who God is and who we are in him. So where does that come from? That comes from verse 17 there, where they say, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. So so why are we just harping on the fact that God is sovereign? It's because we want you to know God as he's revealed himself in his word. And they declare his sovereignty right here. They say that our, our God is able to save us. I can't even remember what he said in the video, but it was basically like that cute little furnace over there is nothing in light of who God is and what he can do. He can save us. They didn't doubt that. And I love that they said, our God, 
whom we serve. Because they were from the nation of Israel. That was God's chosen people. They knew that they had a personal relationship with God. And now as, as the church, as the bride of Christ, those who put their faith in Jesus, we can say the same thing. Do you know God, friend? He's, he's given us this word. He, he's put before you your youth leaders and your counselors and, and other followers of Jesus to make himself known through his followers. And, and knowing him is all that's going to give you hope in life's most devastating circumstances. Knowing him and knowing who you are in him. Do you recognize that the Bible says that those who are in Christ are new creations? That not only are we saved, that we're actually adopted into God's family. And he looks at us as sons and daughters. And we can, we can call him father because of what Jesus has done. And I want you to see that this isn't just an Old Testament idea. It's full all throughout the New Testament and then throughout church history too. So has anyone heard the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul? Well, I don't know if you know the backstory to that, but, but that is one of my favorite songs because that song continues to, to preach the gospel to me time and time again. And actually over several messages, I'm going to walk through just some of the verses of this, songs, of this song. But just verse one tonight, and before I even get there, I, I want to give you the backstory to when these words were written and the circumstances that they were written in. Because Horatio Spafford wrote this song, and when he wrote these lyrics, he was actually going through a trial that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. So in, in the late 1800s, Horatio married his wife, Anna. And then Horatio and Anna, the Spaffords, they had five kids. And in 1871, their son tragically died, most likely of pneumonia. And then Horatio lost his business in the Chicago fire. But then two years pass, and it seems that things have recovered a little bit. And Horatio and Anna, they decide to take their family on a vacation. And at that time, there, there weren't airplanes to fly across the Atlantic. So they say, okay, we're going to sail across the Atlantic, and, and we're going to go to Europe for a vacation. But as they're making their way there, Horatio gets held up in some business, and he tells Anna and their four daughters, he says, you ladies, go ahead. I'll meet you there a few days after you get there. So Anna and the four Spafford girls, they hop on the boat. And four days into their journey, the, the boat gets in a collision with an, another ship. And Anna is just hugging her daughters. And it's recorded that Anna prayed in that moment, God, will you either save us or give us the endurance to walk through whatever comes? And then 12 minutes after the collision, when a boat that size sinks, there's a, a big current that goes with it. And they lost all four of their daughters there in the middle of the Atlantic. And Anna makes it to Europe nine days later. All she can do is, is just send him a, a message that says, Saved, alone, what shall I do? And Horatio hops on the next boat that he can and, and starts sailing. And, and about four days into the journey, the captain stops. And he says, Horatio, this is most likely the place where your daughters died. And right there, in the middle of the Atlantic, over the grave of his daughters, Horatio writes the lyrics to this song. We persevere through trials by knowing who God is and who we are in him. So what does this mean? Because I know it's in Old English. Joey, if you go to that next slide, you see that first line, when peace like a river attendeth my way. 
What he's saying is in the peaceful seasons of life, when life is good, when there's no struggles, when, when things are going well, and then also when sorrows like sea billows roll. A, a sea billow is, is like a mighty wave that's just coming at you. And Horatio is so sorrowful there, sitting over the grave of his daughters. So he's saying in the peaceful seasons of life, in the sorrowful seasons of life, whatever my lot, so whatever the circumstances, thou has taught me to say, God has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. When life is good, when life is just so inexplainably hard and painful, my soul is well. The only reason that Horatio could say that, again, in a circumstance that I wouldn't wish on my greatest enemy, he's still able to say, my soul is well. I'm going to be honest with you. Horatio would not be able to say exactly why that happened. There's a lot of questions that come to my mind. If God is sovereign and if God is good, there's still a lot of painful and and confusing things that happen. But again, a core conviction of mine is that if we could make complete sense of God and his ways, would he really be worth worshiping? If I could truly explain who God is and why he does everything, then I would be on his same level. And I'm not saying it makes circumstances easy, but Horatio was able to say my soul is well because he's a follower of Jesus. And he knows not every question is going to be answered But he can lean on the character of God because God's given us this word and revealed himself through his word. And we wouldn't be able to know him unless he had done this kind act. And Horatio knows that we learn that God is good and loving and works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And Horatio just has to cling to that truth. He has to cling to who God is and who he is and God as God's child. And we're going to talk about eternity over these days. Because I want us to recognize that 99.999 on and on percent of our existence is going to be outside of this physical realm or outside of the realm that we're currently living in. Because uh, 80 years of life are nothing in light of eternity, right? So Horatio is able to say that is so painful in the short life. And I can kind of argue that that a result of that is just because we're in a sinful, broken world right now, and God is saving and redeeming this world, but that still doesn't answer all the questions. But Horatio knows that this is so short compared to, to where I get to be forever and ever and ever. Revelation chapter 21, it talks about the, the new city, new Jerusalem coming, and that's where almost all of our existence as Jesus followers will be. And in this city, there's actually no need for the sun because we are in the presence of God and his glory is shining. And it says that in this city, in the perfect presence of God, there's no more tears, no more pain. But there will be tears and pain and sin and struggle here. And I love that God's word doesn't just shy away from this truth. God doesn't sugarcoat things. God knows that life is going to be hard. And I've interacted with students enough, and I've been around camp long enough to know that some of you are coming to camp with burdens heavier than I've ever walked through. Some of you may may have a relationship with your parents that's just so maybe embarrassing or so hard to even think about, or maybe something has has happened to you that you just can't make sense of, or, or when you hear that I say that God is Father, the, the lens that you have to think of a father is actually really diluted. 
But, but still, God doesn't shy away from showing us. And Jesus even says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And God doesn't just save us the moment that, that we declare him as Lord, that we put our faith in him, that we believe in him. Instead, he chooses to, to save us, to put his spirit inside of us, to, to sit before the Father right now. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, and he's interceding for people who put their faith in him. And not only that, he doesn't just save us, he doesn't just give us his spirit, he doesn't just intercede for us right now when we continue to fall short, he also gives us brothers and sisters to walk through this confusing, painful world with. And that's why I said I love in verse 16 that it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, and, and maybe some of your brothers and sisters are, are going to leave this camp and going to experience hard, hard things. Maybe a parent might get diagnosed with cancer. Or maybe some doubts will start to creep in about even the existence of God. And, and is Jesus really God? Did, did he really rise from the grave? But we get to stand against the tide of our culture because our culture is running far away from God. We're in a sinful world where we're just in constant rebellion to God. But God chooses to save some, and, and we get to stand against that tide together, not alone. In Proverbs 27, I want to make sure I get this verse right. Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. God gives us community to walk through these trials with, to minister to one another. So what would it look like for you to stand firm together in truth? So what I'm going to do is just put the, the two main points that I made up here. And if you missed it in your journals, I'd encourage you to write it down. Because uh, I'm, I'm just praying for you as you now debrief what was discussed from God's word together. That the same spirit that, that's in me, the same spirit that wrote this word, is also in, in other followers of Jesus. And I'm praying that he speaks in your cabins tonight. And that you come with genuine questions and, and you're not scared to bring your doubts to God. Or maybe you've just been holding something that's so hard to talk about, but here you have the freedom because people love you and want to hear of those burdens. So we persevere through trials, and I have it in this order for a reason, because we got to first know who God is. And then we get to know who we are in him for those who have faith in Jesus. And then we stand firm together in truth. Let's pray. Lord, it's almost funny that you give me this opportunity to come and, and preach when I know I just continually fall so short and just I need to hear this message tonight. I, I need to know who you are and um, just trust you in the midst of life's most painful circumstances. So I pray for the cabin times tonight that, that you lead the discussion, that you bring the questions that need to be asked, that you give boldness to some of these students to, to share burdens maybe that they've never shared before. And Lord, would you ultimately reveal who you are and would we just look at you and be amazed and declare your praises for endless days. We love you so much. Would you just work so, so mightily the rest of these three days. Just thanks for bringing us all together here. I just can't wait to watch what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.